those who don't know, um, we've been uh, following a, a series. Uh, we've been looking at Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark's Gospels in the New Testament. And it was probably one of the, the first Gospels ever written. So it's very close uh, to the period when Jesus was uh, still alive and walking on the earth before his resurrection. And it's largely a, a composition of Peter's uh, sermons, if you like. So it's quite brief, but it's quite succinct as well. So everything in it is good, you know. He, he writes in a very uh, brief style. But as I said a, uh, a few weeks ago, it's like bam, bam, bam. You know, there's not any long, drawn-out proses or dialogues or conversations. It's just Jesus moving on. It like, seems like 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and in the passage we read this morning, it's going to be about like that as well. We're still in chapter 1. And we're going to read verses uh, 21 to 34. It will come up on the screen, but um, I was going to say on the pages of your Bible, but my page number is probably different from the ones that's just been handed out. But it's chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 21 through to 34. And it reads this. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Amen. Sorry, I've got lots of bits of paper and things on here. <laughs> you know, as I said, we're still in chapter one, but we've read, it seems that we've read so much already. So much has happened within the, the confines of chapter one. But, now is the, when Jesus has probably started his, what will be a three-year ministry, traversing the land of Israel, proclaiming the good news. And when you think about it, three, three years isn't a very long time, is it? And even before I even go any further in the passage, just the fact that it says they went to Capernaum, it causes me to question, if I was to ask any of you, could you tell me where Capernaum is? Put your hand up. Oh, Richard knows. Well done. Uh, I'll, you'll be on my pub quiz team. <laughs> well, Capernaum is right on the north uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee. 
I didn't expect many people to put their hands up because on a political scale, it, it didn't rate much. By the time of Jesus, it was a reasonable-sized town. Probably about 1,500 people lived there. But if this is going to be the starting point of Jesus' ministry, remember, he's only got three years. It doesn't really follow suit with kind of modern ideas of marketing and strategy, does it? If you want to make a name for yourself, you want to go to the, the big towns, the big places, you want to start in Jerusalem, Jesus. We know it did end there. But surely that would have been a better place to start. Or if you want to impress the Gentiles, why don't you go to Rome? But yet, he started in this little, seems to be a backwater called Capernaum. Certainly it was prophesied that Jesus would, would bring light to that region. But there was other places it could have chosen. Why Capernaum? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. It's one that we could all learn something from as well. The fact that Jesus started in Capernaum was because his first disciples, James and John, Simon and Andrew, Matthew, the tax collector, that's where they lived. And remember, Jesus didn't have a home of his own. The reason why you find it again in the Bible, again and again, you keep hearing Capernaum, 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 is because of the very fact that there were people who invited him into their homes. They entertained Jesus. They were willing to put themselves out for him. They said, Jesus, come and, come, come and spend time at my house. You know, and when you invite Jesus to dinner, it's, you're not just going to get dinner. You're going to get ministry. <laughs> you're going to get a lot of good stuff happening. And I think for us today, you know, if you're a Christian, there's an encouragement there. You know, you don't have to go to the furthest reaches of the earth to serve Jesus. You know, he loves the people of Inverurie. <laughs> he loves the people of Kintour. He loves the people of Kemney or Blackburn. Wherever you are, you can invite Jesus anywhere you, into your place, into your life. You know, if you give Jesus your time, your energy, he'll fill it with his. And he'll use your place. He'll use your life. He'll use your time to minister and to reach other people. And that's basically what Jesus did in Capernaum. And he wants to do it here in Inverurie. He wants to do it where you are. You know, don't ever dismiss, well, Jesus, who am I? You know, you could have said that about Matthew, the tax collector. You could have said that about Simon, Peter, who was just a fisherman, and Andrew, and likewise. But they just said, Jesus, my time is yours. Use it as you feel. And he did. And he'll do that for you as well. Anyway, let's crack on. Um, other than people's homes, you know, the usual place where you would meet Jesus then was at the synagogue. And unless you are some familiarity with Judaism, the synagogue, you're probably familiar with the term. You might recognize it. Well, it's a, kind of, it's a Jewish building, but what is it? I suppose you could liken it to a, the local parish church of the past, if you like. Only in the sense that it was the... the, the the community focus, it was the center for the community, certainly for the Jewish community. That would be the place where they would gather for teaching, for communal prayer. You know, sacrifices and worship, that was reserved for the, the big temple in Jerusalem. But for basically keep, keeping together the, the, the fabric of the Jewish way of life, the synagogue was the place for that. It was the place where they, they studied meticulously the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law or the Torah, if you'd like to call it. And it's there that there would be often be debate and instruction. 
And it was a precarious thing sometimes to go there and ask the, the visiting rabbi or teacher of the law. You might go in with a basic question like, um, should I untie my ox on the Sabbath to let it have a drink? Now, you might think that's a very basic yes or no answer. Well, depending on who is the visiting teacher, you might still be there five hours later <laughs> waiting for an answer. Because they often debated, they would uh, go into a long diatribe of different, quoting different rabbis and teachings, and rabbi such and such said this, but rabbi, rabbi such and such said that and that. And, and if you were patient enough to wait till the end and you got an answer, you might actually come up with more questions than you did with answers. As I said, it was a, it was a precarious thing because the reason was that the teachers, and it's highlighted in the passage, they didn't teach with a sense of authority. It was always deferred to somebody else said this and somebody else said that. There was almost like a hesitancy because nobody would commit themselves to an actual, well, this is what it says. Jesus was different. Jesus was different. Jesus is the one who in life teaches. Jesus is the authority. He's the authority of life and in life. He taught with an absolute sense of knowing. He didn't need to appeal to the opinions of others or to the received traditions of ancient rabbis who said this or this or that. You know, Jesus, when he spoke, he cut through all rhetoric. He cut through spin. He cut through everything. And he just simply spoke truth. He spoke the kind of truth that when people heard it, they knew it. They knew it in the core of their being because it was the kind of truth that got right under your skin. They got right under the skin. It got right into the core of the, motiv- the, the drivers and the things that motivate people in life. As you read the, the, the Bible, you find that it's a dangerous thing to get into an argument with Jesus because he would often pull back the mask of his opponents and exposed to them their skewed and sometimes misguided perspective on life and certainly on other people. And he did this not to shame them, but to extend freedom to them and liberty, liberty towards there's actually a better way of life. You know, Jesus himself said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He also said, I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. You know, truth by its very nature has a legitimate authority of its, no, of its, of its own. It's not built upon the acquisition of power or popularity. Truth offers a proper understanding of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life. And these very things are found in Jesus. Whether people liked it or not, Jesus told them the truth. And that was the foundation and the cornerstone of his authority. You see, Jesus isn't conditioned or is he subject to the the, the fads or the trends of the age. He doesn't look to appease their majority. He's only conditioned by truth. He's conditioned by the only will that ultimately makes any difference. The will of his heavenly father. 
You know, Jesus later said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't require validation from somebody else or any other external source. And that's why, in a sense, we can trust him. Has anybody ever here read which magazine? <laughs> I have. <laughs> you know, we often go to it when we're looking to make a purchase of something. I don't know, maybe it's a new Hoover or a microwave or something. And the reason why we use it is because it's an independent source. It's not propped up or sponsored by Sony or uh, Dyson or anyone else. It tells you the facts. It tells you the way it is. You know, if you do this one, it will work. Thanks, witch. I know I can trust you because you tell me the truth. And it's the same with Jesus. He tells us the truth. He tells us the way it is. You know, R.C. Sproul, he's a commentator, a theologian, Christian, and he wrote this. The very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. And as far as God is a foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. You know, Jesus used a lovely illustration, and there's no point in giving you another one. I'll just tell you the one that he used, because <laughs> he's the best. You know, and he said, you know, following me is a bit like two men. One you could liken as the wise man, the other the foolish man. The wise man built a house upon a rock. It was a sure foundation. It wasn't going to shift. It wasn't going to move. It was hard work, but he built it. Whereas the other man, the foolish man, built his house upon the sand. Now, you don't have to be a great builder to know which one is probably going to stand the test of time. But to complete the story, when the storms came and the floods came and the waters rose, it was the man who built his house upon the rock that stood. Whereas the man whose house was built on the sand, it completely collapsed and was washed away. And Jesus ended that illustration by saying, you know, whoever listens to the words of mine and follows them is the man who built his house upon the rock. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. Follow me, Jesus says. You know, Jesus' uh, authority doesn't just encompass the natural ebbs and flows of life, but also the realms of powers and principalities that we have no control over. And to some extent, as well, to every extent, he also has over and over power, and he has authority over even those powers that we fear may have control over us. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus is the authority that also sets us free. You know, in the West, we have succumbed to a very um, materialistic understanding of the world. What you see is what you get, and there's nothing else. But yet there is something inside of us, in our psyche, in the core of our being, that we are still drawn towards things like looking at the horoscopes, um, maybe paying a premium ticket to go and see Annie Moon, who's, a, I think, a local medium. <laughs> or maybe even avoiding the cracks in the pavement 
or don't cross the path of a black cat. Now, in a very rational state of mind, we know that much of this stuff is just nonsense. But yet, there is a, a dimension to life that we are still conscious of. There is a spiritual element to life. And sometimes it disturbs us to the core of our being because of the very fact it causes us to consider that perhaps there are some things in life that we have no comprehension, understanding, or control over. You know, this incident with the man in the synagogue who was possessed by an unclean spirit, it sounds like the stuff of Hollywood horror films. You know, it's okay if that kind of stuff's on screen, but (laughs) that's where I'd like to keep it. But is there a possibility that anything of this stuff is actually true? Well, I'm glad to see in all the years of ministry, and I have been on the go for a while now, (laughs) there's only ever been one occasion where I could liken what happened with that man that I've seen and witnessed and experienced. And it was frightening. I remember I was was sitting in the, the church office. It was vestry hour, as they called it then. I was working for the Church of Scotland, and this family, who had completely nothing to do with the church whatsoever, approached me and, and, and began to tell me their story of how there was, seemed to be some malignant presence force uh, affecting, disrupting their lives at home. And it was scary. Scary. They, they couldn't didn't have any, they couldn't grasp this. They, couldn't, they had no uh, foundation in which to even understand what was going on, although they knew that they were powerless and that something was happening in their home that they couldn't comprehend, they couldn't understand, they couldn't explain, but it was terrifying them. It was destroying their relationships. It was, it was, it was just horrible. And the funny thing is, I said to them, well, you feel like that. You tell me that. I feel like that as well. <laughs> because it's so uncommon. Thankfully, it is so uncommon. But once was enough for me. And it certainly convinced me and me realized that, you know, when Jesus said, I have come to destroy all the works of the evil one, well, he really meant it. <laughs> it's true. And in some sense, I was apologizing because I don't know what they were expecting from me. But in that moment, I was reminded of something that Jesus said himself. He says that he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in that moment, I just said, Lord, you need to come. You need to do something here because I don't know if they were expecting some kind of me to pull out a talisman or do some incantation, but there's nothing. We simply invited Jesus to come. And you know what? Just as he immediately and dramatically changed that man's life in the courtyard of a synagogue 2,000 years ago, he did the very same right there that night in the church office. He brought peace into their lives. He brought peace into their home. He brought peace to their daughter who was somewhere else at the very same moment, but yet she received the same peace. We went back later to visit them afterwards. And what a complete transformation. Five minutes in the presence of Jesus had completely turned their situation upside down. It was amazing. It, It shouldn't amaze me, but it does. And in a sense, I'm like the, the crowd as well. I was stood there amazed. Wow! <laughs> it works! <laughs> Jesus, you're real! <laughs> but it also reminded as well that the evil one is also real. And he came to steal and to destroy, but Jesus has come to silence him, to bind him up and cast him out. And that was the other thing that amazed the people at this um, frightening event. 
You know, exorcism wasn't an unusual thing back then. But they were offering a long, protracted um, event. It was almost akin more like to a hostage negotiation. You know, trying to appease or do a deal with this spirit in the hope that it might actually leave. Jesus cuts through all that. He doesn't have to negotiate with anyone, certainly not the powers of darkness. He just says, shut up and get out. And it does. Just as easily as a man might say to a dog to sit. So every power is under his authority. You know, if some of this stuff seems a bit weird or, or even it disturbs you, maybe you've had experiences in the past. Maybe you've dabbled with, I don't know, Ouija or gone to visit mediums and stuff like that. Some of that stuff can affect us in a negative way. You know, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. And we always make a space at the end of our service where we call it ministry. Where basically, if there's anything that has touched you or disturbed you or God is doing something in you and he's raising something with you, well, we just make space at the side here where you can go forward and somebody will stand with you and pray. And God may well do something wonderful. You know, the way that Jesus dealt with the, the Spirit, it reminds me, I, I needed to read this to you because, well, it's, it's quite poignant, but it's quite funny as well. You know, it's a transcript from a radio conversation between the, the U.S. and U.S. naval ship and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And it goes like this. This is the Americans uh, speaking. Please divert your course 15 degrees north to avoid a collision. The Canadian authorities responded like this. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans responded, This is the captain of the U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians responded, No, I say again, divert your course. And then the Americans come on like this and say, This is the aircraft carrier, the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the U.S. Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Our countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. The Canadians responded, we're a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. <laughs> Jesus is the supreme authority. And every evil must flee in his presence. He will, is unmoving just as much as the Canadian lighthouse. <laughs> You know, in the last scene of this passage, Jesus once again exerts his authority, but this time over sickness and death, to heal an old woman. Well, I say an old woman, I don't know that she was old. I'll take that back. (laughs) But it's her reaction to the healing that models something to us. It's an invitation on how to respond to Jesus. And I want the last thing I want to say this morning is that Jesus is the kind of authority that should be sought and not fought. I don't imagine that Peter's mother-in-law was a kind of slouch in the household. She was probably like the chief matriarch and she would always be in the thick of things, always being busy, always working, always doing something. But she'd been laid low by a fever. We don't tend to ask people 
uh, who've just recovered from a fever to get busy in the kitchen. We tend to be very kind to them and say, put your feet up, love, and I'll bring you a cup of tea. But <laughs> you haven't had a fever yet. <laughs> but it comes from her, you see. And this is what Jesus' authority is all about. He didn't come to oppress. He didn't come with a mallet saying, you listen to me. You know? It's an invitation. An invitation to come under his authority. In the old... Not the... Peter's mother-in-law. It was a response of grace. It was a response of love. I don't know how much she knew about Jesus already, but she knew here was somebody who loves me. Here is somebody who's looking out for me. You know, we don't often associate authority. Sometimes it has a very negative connotation for us today. We often more see it as a kind of word we associate with those who want to rule others, who want to boss others, who want to, you know, establish a power base and keep it. And keep everybody else underfoot. Jesus' authority is all about releasing people. Freeing people. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be who we were created to be. He doesn't want anybody to have a wasted life. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be alive. It really is. Because you were created for a purpose. And God has got that purpose in mind. And if anyone... ever finds themselves questioning or wondering what is my life worth you only have to turn to Jesus he'll tell you how much it's worth and he proved that that he is the king of kings but yet he is the king who laid down his life for each and every one of us you'll never meet an authority like that ever again his authority is the one to be sought and not to be fought or struggled against so the Peter's mother, and what does she do when she meets Jesus? When when she receives something from him, her reaction is, I want to serve you. (laughs) I want to show my my thankfulness to you, my love towards you. I I just want to do something for you. And Jesus doesn't demand it. It's simply the response to his authority. And that's what Jesus would love from each of us today as well. He's not going to enforce it on you. It's an invitation to come. Come and follow me. As I said, Jesus is the authority of life and in life. He's the authority that will set us free. And his is the authority to be sought, not to be fought. That's a wonderful invitation. You know, if Jesus was running for political office, I would vote for him. (laughs) But he's not running for political office. He's got something better in mind. He wants to be my king, my lord, my saviour, my friend, my everything. And I want that as well. And then perhaps if you're here this morning, maybe just here as a visitor, or you've never considered the authority of Jesus, even as Christians, sometimes we have a tendency, I'll, t- I'll take the grace, I'll take the, uh, the good things, but no, I'm not so sure about you being my boss. <laughs> it's all one. It's a, 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 
It comes as a whole package. To call Jesus as Jesus your Lord, you're in a safe place. You're in a good place. It's the only place to be. Can I encourage you to consider that this morning? And if any of that has spoken to you this morning, please do make, uh, not, uh, take time to go to the side and we'd love to just stand with you in prayer. Nothing weird, nothing odd. Just going to stand with you and to pray and ask God to do and to, to complete what he's already started.